pandemic flu and the concept of pre-triage. What is it? And will it work? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a focus on public health policy. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Gregory Gilbert. Dr. Gilbert is an emergency medicine specialist and assistant clinical professor at Stanford University, where he directs the EMS Fellowship and the Life Flight Critical Care Transport Program. He has helped design influenza response plans at his institution and recently reported on these efforts at an emergency medicine conference sponsored by Stanford. Dr. Gilbert comes to us today from his office near San Francisco. And today we're discussing pandemic flu planning and the concept of pre-triage for hospitals. Dr. Gilbert, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Maybe before we get started on this pre-triage concept, which I find rather fascinating, how about telling us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this topic? I think it all started back in medical school in Brooklyn, New York, when I went to SUNY Downstate, where I was involved in some of the EMS things going on there. And then again in Atlanta at Emory University, where I did uh, my residency in emergency medicine and continued doing pre-hospital care related things. And then finally, when I got out here to Stanford, you know, becoming the medical director of LifeLight and uh, the EMS liaison, it just seemed the right fit for me to start working with the whole pre-triage aspect of the pandemic flu. Okay. Well, pandemic flu is in some ways different, some ways the same when it comes to hospitals planning for emergencies and hospitals planning for the catastrophic. You've been involved in some of that, obviously, at your institution. Tell us a little about what it's like to sit down and talk about the unthinkable. Well, the funny thing is that the first day of the meetings typically involve just discussing why are we discussing the unthinkable because the unthinkable is never going to happen. And then you think back to 9-11 and you're like, perhaps the unthinkable can happen. With pandemic flu, you know, we're already at phase three, uh, according to the World Health Organization. So while it's never really been on the radar, this H5N1 or the avian flu seems to be something to be concerned about. Well, let's talk a little bit about some recent work you've done. You wrote in uh, ASAP recently about the concept of pre-triage. So what is that and why is it relevant here? So when we were trying to plan for pandemic influenza, we realized that, you know, people were going to be coming into the triage area and probably have, you know, breathing on other people that are in there. So you really don't want to mix your patients that are having heart attacks and make them worse by giving them pandemic flu as well. Um, so the idea became that maybe there should be a pre-triage area, which actually uh, Eric Weiss came up with that term. And so I thought, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Let's come up with some sort of pre-triage area. So at first I thought of people standing in lines out in front of the triage area and then I got to thinking uh, about, you know, living in New York and how cold it's there. And I was like, I don't think I'd want to be standing outside and that sort of thing. Not to mention I'm still coughing on each other and we still haven't really, you know, isolated anyone. Everyone's still infecting one another with pandemic influenza, those that may have it and those that don't. So I thought about it some more and I eventually came up with the idea, you know, pretty much everybody that comes to our emergency department drives up in a car. You know, and that's kind of like an isolated area. So that might be a way to keep people from breathing on one another, keep people warm, and rapidly decide whether or not those patients need to go on and be evaluated for admission or those that might need to be discharged home. 
So you came up with this idea of drive-through triage. Very California, it sounds like. Why, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so how does this work? Considering how? I'm a New Yorker. No. <laughs> <laughs> how does it work? So you've got the World Health Organization says there's pandemic flu around. Tell me how it would look, maybe at Stanford. Okay. So the way that we have it kind of set up is once we hit phase five, we would start setting up the pandemic flu plan and uh, start incorporating the drive-through triage idea. And so what it happens is is that there's essentially one main entrance into our emergency department and one main entrance into our main hospital. So they're kind of at opposite ends of one another. Typically, they all come via one route. Regardless, you could, depending on how many different roads there were, uh, you could set it up any sort of different way. So, But uh, on our situation, they're driving down Sand Hill Road, typically, and what we would do is we'd put up signs. And one sign would say, flu slash cold symptoms, and the other one sign would say other complaints. And so the flu slash cold symptoms would have an arrow to the right, and other symptoms would have just an arrow to go straight and to go around towards the back of the hospital and towards the emergency department. And so that would direct you to the pre-triage slash drive-through triage area. So you have now your regular emergency folks, as always, and the ones that go to the pre-triage area, what is that? Is that another building? Is it a tent? Is it a house? A bunch of people in moon suits? What's that going to look like? So it depends on, on the setup that you have at your institution. For us, since we don't have too cold of a, a winter, it's going to be basically a tent that's set up over a two-lane road that's known as Pasture Drive. And so patients will drive into that. And depending on how long the line is, we could move it up or back. So we could probably accommodate somewhere around 100 to 200 cars, depending on where we set up the drive-through area. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a focus on public health policy on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Gregory Gilbert. And we're talking about pandemic flu planning and the concept of pre-triage for hospitals. So, Greg, we've got uh, these folks being pre-triaged to a tent-like structure. Do they get out of the car? Do people go to the car to talk to them? How's that going to work? At this point, they're going to meet a nurse who's going to be fully protected from catching pandemic influenza, and she's going to be armed with a uh, pulse ox machine as well as a, a triage form with a few simple questions. The first question is going to be, were you able to ambulate to the car? Therefore, guessing at their blood pressure, if they were able to ambulate to the car, they probably had a blood pressure that was good enough and would not require further evaluation. The pulse ox is going to give them a heart rate and an oxygen saturation. And as long as it was less than 120 and the oxygen saturation was greater than 92%, those would also meet discharge criteria. And then lastly, they would check the respiratory rate. If the patient appeared to Kipnik to the pre-triage slash drive-through nurse, then they would, again, if they were to Kipnik, they would move them into secondary triage and otherwise they would be screened out and sent home with discharge instructions. So when you say that when they meet discharge qualifications, meaning that's it for them, they, they're discharged home? Exactly. So basically, it's probably going to take them about five minutes. And if their heart rate's good, their oxygen saturation's good, they were able to ambulate, they're not breathing fast, those patients are not going to meet criteria for admission during a pandemic flu and can do home care. Got it. And now the ones that are referred to what you said was, especially if they're tachypnic or other criteria, they would be referred to a secondary triage? That's correct. And how does that work? So in the secondary triage area, there they, again, depending on whether they're driving or they're being driven, they will drive up to the second area. It requires a double loop system. So the people that have triaged out, they turn off and turn right. Those that don't would continue on forward into the secondary loop or the secondary triage area. So 
So there would be people, again, in protective gear that would pick them up and move them over to a cot. At this cot, um, they would have their blood pressure taken, an IV would be started, blood would be drawn, and an ISTAT would be used to calculate the various portions of the port score. What's the thinking from there that they would ultimately be admitted to a separate unit, separate part of the hospital, separate building if they needed a hospital admission? Right. So based on what their port score is calculated out to be, it would risk stratify them. So if they were a five and they basically appeared to be almost dead, those patients would actually be moved to an expectant area. Those in four and five that appear to have relatively good chance would be moved to the intensive care unit. Those in three would be moved to an influenza care center. And those in one and two would be sent back to the discharge area and discharged home. Have you calculated what you expect the time would be from initial drive up to final disposition? In theory, so five minutes for the initial thing, and then again, probably about 20 to 30 minutes in the other one. So ideally about 35 minutes per patient. Well, that's obviously a quite a bit different way of doing business than emergency rooms do now. What's been the response to your planning group there at Stanford to that proposal? It's been extremely favorable. People have looked at it and thought about it and tried to come up with ways to challenge it. And so far, pretty much everyone says, it actually looks pretty good. Why don't we go with it? And uh, it's actually become part of our main flu plan. As described, as you've been talking about, is that going to require... Um, additional dollars for buildings for people, for training, uh, things like that? So there's what we call JIT, or just-in-time training forms. So those people that would report to work during a pandemic flu would be trained either to be a triage nurse or to work in the secondary triage area, depending on what their expertise is. The other big cost in our thing is going to be the pulse ox machines, which have already been purchased, and as well as the ISTAT machines. So the more people that you obviously have doing the secondary triage, the faster or the larger the number of patients that you can push through. So I think we've bought, I think, 20 of those as well. The pulse socks, are those the finger clips or is it more uh, complex than that? No, it's just the finger clips. Uh, I think they're just the yellow handheld with the finger clips. Um, We decided not to do the uh, disposable. I talked with infectious disease and they felt that uh, just cleaning each one with an alcohol wipe in between each patient was more than enough and that, you know, just that was probably overkill that just moving it from one patient's finger to the next probably wasn't going to transmit pandemic flu. You've designed this for a particular institution. Is the concept, you think, transferable to others? I think it is transferable to others, provided that you have an area that has what I was talking about, this double loop system. So provided that you don't have to go by the secondary area, which would cause a traffic jam. But as long as you have that double loop available at your hospital, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't be able to institute this pre-triage slash drive-through triage plan. What kind of feedback have you had from your publication? Any comments, criticisms, suggestions? Mostly just compliments. Most people want to know more about it, try to find out how to make it work for their institution. The one thing that uh, the port score does is figuring out arterial pH. And I think that there's been enough studies that show venous pH to be pretty similar to arterial pH. And then the PO2, which would significantly be different, but if you were that close to trying to decide on a patient, you could always get an ABG or just do ABGs on all patients as it only requires a small amount of blood for an ISTAT. Well, Greg, this is a fascinating topic. I uh, congratulate you on a lot of the good work you've done, and and we really appreciate your uh, sharing with our audience today. I want to thank Dr. Gregory Gilbert, who's been our guest, and we've been discussing pandemic flu planning and the concept of pre-triage for hospitals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to a focus on public health policy on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. 
We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Paul Stricker with Scripps Clinic in San Diego, and you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Here is a sample of the great shows airing this week. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard. My guest this week is Dr. Larry Deep. In our special segment, Focus on Sports Medicine, we discuss how type 1 diabetics are able to participate and excel in sports. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. Join me this week for a special segment on cancer, and I will be interviewing Dr. Brian Dury from Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in L.A. to discuss new treatments in multiple myeloma. And this is Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill. This week we will be speaking with Dr. Bert Mandelbaum in Santa Monica, California. We will be talking about measures to prevent ACL injuries in our young athletes. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM157, where we change topics every 15 minutes. For our complete weekly guest and program guide, visit us at ReachMD.com.